This is TechSnap, episode 348. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. We recorded this episode on December 14th, 2017. This episode is brought to you by our three great sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and iX Systems. I'll tell you more about those sponsors as we go. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is Mr. Payne, Mr. Wes Payne, the presenter, the educator, and the engineer. Hello, Wes. Hello, sir. When I was picturing you, I was picturing you up on a presentation podium giving a really good presentation on closure. Oh, yeah, there you go. The presenter. Hey, that was a lot of fun. But it's true. You know, like in the UK, that's what they call us podcast hosts. So, hey, Wes, it's good to be with you on a whole new show. I, I, uh, I thought we'd start with a little talk about the show, since everybody's wondering what's going on, where you guys been. What you got in the store. Get it all out there. What you got in store. We do have some good stuff coming up, though. We have some really traditional tech snap style stories coming up. Uh, And we have an adventure. We go out into the Jupiter Broadcasting server room, a.k.a. the garage, and perform a live upgrade. And we recorded all of it for you. But let's start with some meta stuff. We don't do this very often, but let's talk about us. Obviously, there's two huge elephants in the room. Number one is me. I'm back. It's it's good to be back. You are a huge elephant. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. That hurts, dude. That but hurts. you look good doing it. It's fine. Well, I am a fancy elephant. Yeah, I'm back, and I'm pretty excited about it because this is the other elephant in the room. We're making some really big changes. Nothing is set in stone. We're still listening to feedback, but we're making changes on the format a little bit, and we're switching to an audio show for a while, at least, at least for now. And this is really sort of to make it sustainable for me. Like, if I'm going to get involved again, I want it to be a show I'm really passionate about. So I'm going to be involved with the editing of it for a while and really from beginning to end the whole show to try to make it into something I think is a great competitive good. Right. This is our chance to to really have a shot of, like, what did we love about the old show and what do we want to carry forward? Yeah. And, and what did the audience love? We'll be listening for that. Right. We have a new site that I want to point everybody to and a new RSS feed. All very important bits. So let's start with the new site. You can go to techsnap.systems. Techsnap.systems will have every episode post, our show notes, and it has a really nice format. Techsnap.systems slash episode number. So to get to all of the links for this episode in your mobile browser, on your desktop, wherever you like, go to techsnap.systems slash 348. Could be simpler. All the links. And you get a download, you get RSS, everything. And oh, and if you want the RSS, just plug it into your favorite RSS podcast catcher, techsnap.systems slash RSS. And that's it. Wow. We got links to everything at techsnap.systems. We'll be updating the Jupiter Broadcasting website. It's the holidays, so things are a little slow there, but we'll have all of that at techsnap.systems, always current, canonical references for this show. We'll also have a new video feed in the future. So stay tuned for that, but please, in the meantime, go subscribe to the audio RSS feed at techsnap.system slash RSS, or we have links to all of your favorite podcast catchers on that site. So that's sort of the bit of first bit of housekeeping right there. As far as what to expect in the new show, in the reboot, uh, I think you're going to see a lot of the things that Wes is working on take a pretty prominent role in the show, or at least some of the conversations will be driven by that. There's also a bunch of infrastructure things I've begun working on since the, what was it, 10 months ago I was doing the show, 11 months ago. I didn't launch any other shows in that meantime. I did a few projects, but I didn't launch any replacement yeah, that's shows. that's right. I spent some time redoing some of our back-end infrastructure. In fact, that's why we have new RSS feeds and all that stuff. Like, I've been rebuilding that's infrastructure. Great. TechSnap was our oldest show, our oldest running show, and so it had the most archaic back-end infrastructure. So I've been spending, specifically the last couple of weeks, but building the systems to replace it since I went off this show. 
And it wasn't been, I hadn't been building it for this show. We didn't, we didn't have any plans to redo the back end of the show. But when this reboot came, it seemed like, well, this is the perfect time to move all of this over. And so we're going we're gonna to share bits and pieces of that throughout TechSnap as well. Uh, we're doing some storage upgrades. That's what we're going to start with is some of the storage stuff, uh, redoing our ZFS array here at the studio, all of that. Some of that will be coming up in this episode. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to be fascinated to dig into the things you work on on a day-to-day basis and some of the horrible things you end up having to deal with too. Sometimes I look over and I see Wes dealing with a Slack thread and I'm like, oh, God, I'm glad I'm not doing that. That certainly happens. <laughs> so that should be good. But we got to start this week with a proper TechSnap story, something that is canonical TechSnap. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There is one story that has survived the Alan and Chris era the Dan and Wes era, and now lives on in the Chris and Wes era, which is almost too perfect to kick it off this week with a good old botnet story. Over the past few years, there's really been one botnet to rule them all. It was released open source, there's been a ton of copies, and it just won't go away. That's right, it's Mirai. Now, it's hard to say M-I-R-A-I, Mirai, uh, but it has some huge impacts on the web. It's brought down a ton of sites that we've seen with like with like Dyn, Twitter, Netflix, etc. And it's had a big effect on some of the researchers who've been trying to follow along, such as Brian Krebs. He had a ton of trouble, had to change his hosting providers when they went after him. The biggest headlines it first made were in September of 2016, when they maxed out a 620 gigabit line, which was twice the size of the previous largest attack. That's why I got all the headlines. It's just boom, out of nowhere. And then it was, you mean they did all of this with people's routers and DVRs? It was the accumulation of taking all of these low-end devices and using every little scrap of resource they had, network and CPU, and just throwing it all at stuff. Right. And we'd heard about those kinds of attacks before, but usually they were a little more targeted, right? It was a section of the internet or is one particular site that they were attacking, whereas this, that's so much bandwidth and traffic, it had implications all over. And then like you mentioned, one of the other things they did that was a little unusual is in the height of all of it, they open-sourced the botnet code. And then within days of open sourcing it, there were multiple different competing botnets that were all going after the same IoT vulnerable hardware. Right. And so everything's just getting blasted. Yeah. And of course, like, you know, they're all using the same. They're just trying to find firmwares that have known vulnerabilities that are unpatched or things with root passwords that are known. There's only a finite number of them, but they're just everywhere. Mostly in the States, it was maxing out people's Internet connections and taking websites offline. But Krebs points out that in the United Kingdom and in Germany... There was one particular disrupted, disruptive variant of this botnet that went against a number of banks and went at ISP's core networks. That, so they knocked off wow. the entire regions. So it was worse outside the states. But really the big update to this story is we now have a better idea of who's actually behind it. Yeah. The government just unveiled some charges and a New Jersey man was just one of a trio who ended up pleading guilty. So yeah, they actually have some names and people involved and they've pled guilty They've waived some rights even. Like, this is rolling. Yes, right. So they've also pled guilty to being involved in a bunch of fake clicking, right? So here here they're using their botnet to go click Click a bunch of advertisements. Click fraud. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also revealed is that a lot of their motivations were attacking Minecraft servers. (laughs) And then in particular, one of the defendants also was attacking their university, Rutgers. Uh, So really just using this, abusing this power all over the place. Plus, they were also running a company that would, was selling services to defend against DDoS attacks. So really just one Double hand weapon. feeding the other. Interesting thing, too, about the college attack is the attacker used the nickname OG underscore Richard underscore Stallman. That was his nickname online. <laughs> OG <What>? Stallman. <laughs> 
DigitalOcean.com. Go there and create an account and then use our promo code SNAPOcean. They'll give you a $10 credit and then you can spin up a system on their really great infrastructure. Everything's SSDs, 40 gigabit connections to the hypervisors, lots and lots of great storage options. You can choose FreeBSD or one of the mini Linuxes and they have data centers all over the world in pretty essential locations. You've probably heard about DigitalOcean a few times if you've listened to this podcast before. So I want to point you over to a guide that they've just posted. I love these things. Love these things, Wes. How to monitor Nagios alerts with Alerta on Ubuntu 16.04. Now, Alerta is a web application used to consolidate and deduplicate alerts from multiple monitoring systems. That sounds like something I need in my life. Yeah, right. It's super easy. So let's say you have like you have a home Nagios, you got a JB Nagios. They're all sending alerts. You don't want to log into both of them. You put a one Alerta instance. It kind of just puts it all in one place and you can go check it out. But it does have a bunch of uh, integrations with stuff like PagerDuty or other services that, you know, if you want to send you an email or a Slack webhook when you have yeah. an alert. Yeah. And they have a the tutorial on how to set all of this up, up on DigitalOcean. Or you can go even easier if you want they have built-in monitoring alerting that just is part of the DigitalOcean service. It collects metrics, monitors performance, and then you receive alerts and help you optimize application performance at no additional cost. It's pretty great. DigitalOcean.com. Just use our promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean and all of you guys for keeping this show going and using the promo code SNAPOcean. So, Chris, didn't you just get a new keyboard? Yes. Thankfully, it wasn't built into an HP laptop, but it was just discovered, surprise, surprise, different models of HP laptops have a keylogger built in. Wait, built in? This is some research that uh, a security researcher that goes by the uh, nickname of ZW Close discovered. He said it's in several of these different laptops, and they'll record every single keystroke, including passwords and account information and credit card details. It is turned off by default. However, it's just a registry entry away, and so... Well, know. of course. <laughs> yeah, it can be turned on. It's embedded in the uh, syntp.sys file. So it's in the synaptics uh, syntp.sys file. Uh, it ships with not just HP computers, but a bunch of others. And I, I haven't been able to get confirmation, but it sounds like this particular issue is built in there, they claim, as a, quote, debug trace, which was accidentally left in. I see. But HP says it wasn't left in by us, it was left in by Synaptics. And they say that it's a potential vulnerability, which any version of the Synaptic touchpad that any manufacturer has that's shipping these drivers, all of their OEM partners could oh, have this. Oh, boy. Yeah, okay. So HP's taking it right now in the face for this problem because it was discovered in the HP driver. But HP's st- statement reads as, I'll give you the verbatim and you tell me, but it reads as if maybe a lot of manufacturers have this problem and it just hasn't been exposed yet. Quote from HP. This is uh, from their uh, one of their spokespeople. A potential security vulnerability has been identified with certain versions of Synaptics touchpad drivers that impact all Synaptics OEM partners. Doesn't that sound like? Yeah, it does, right? And usually in this case, especially on the Windows side of things, right? You're building this new. You're building this new laptop. You have a new form factor. You have this type of keyboard, this type of touchpad. You go work with your upstream vendor. You get the driver written for yours that you maybe then go sign and deliver. But ultimately, you're not creating the bulk of that code. Mm. Your partner is right. So that's obviously. I mean, I would bet the case here. Now, there's another element to this that uh, I think a lot of people. Their first reaction is going to be, well, if you're going to modify the registry. You're gonna have to have. You're gonna have to have local access. You're gonna have to be an administrator, right? But I think my response to that has always been, and I'd like to know what you think. Is it's not really about um, the remote as- aspect angle of it. It's more about 
it's an island to hop to. If you can get on the box and then you can start to stack different issues or vulnerabilities, you make like a cocktail of vulnerabilities and then you get further and further into the system. And uh, if you knew that there's all these different models of laptops, if HP alone has 460 different iterations of it, then there's a likely scenario that a bunch of other vendors like Dell and Lenovo do too. I know Dell has some. Yeah, right, exactly. No, I think you're I think you're right about that. And that's a, then that's a much bigger deal, don't you think? Ab- absolutely it is. And and you know, it's true like this isn't the worst vulnerability in the world. It's not like it's automatically keylogging and sending it to anyone interested on the internet, but it just happens to be in there though. If you it, want to turn it on. It, it just happens to be in there, so it, it makes it a little bit easier, right? And so that that's exactly what you see is that okay, you have local access, now you've got yourself admin access. Maybe you know. Maybe you would have been prevented by by the network's firewalls or any other system. This is just making it so easy. Flip one switch, output it to a log file somewhere. There you go, right? And then you can start getting things like administrator passwords, network passwords. And the question you have to ask yourself is: Do you trust every application on your Windows box that is running with some level of privileges? Like we've seen a lot of stories about antivirus software that turns out to be malware or PC cleanup tools that turn out to be malware. You have to ask yourself. Do you really, truly trust everything running on your PC? It's not even a Windows problem. And if the answer to that is yes, then things like this aren't a concern to you. But if the answer is, I don't know to know, then I think it is a concern. It also makes you wonder a little about, like, what's the quality control going on here? And yes, okay, maybe, you know, maybe HP, it isn't your fault, but you're the one here with the economic leverage on Synaptic. You should be, you know, make, having contracts requiring that your vendors pass certain security measures or take certain controls into effect. There's a, a good post by the uh, fellow, the uh, researcher that I mentioned earlier, ZW Close. I, I'll link to it in the show notes. If you're curious how somebody goes through and discovers something like this, like how do you actually find this? Right. He has it broken down if you want to scroll through it. All right. Well, let's say that uh, just last year you uh, bought one of your family an HP laptop for Christmas. What should I be telling them about this? Is there anything they can do? Can they verify that the registry setting's off? Is there a patch driver? Yeah, so they have gotten the patch out. All of the affected HP notebook models have a patch now. That's pretty good. Okay, yeah, that is You do have good. to go get it yourself and apply it. Um, go to so the it's HP not like it website. shows up in Windows Update or anything handy like that. And while you're there, uh, also update their audio driver because in May of this year, there was a built-in keylogger in the HP audio driver, which was silently recording all of its users' keystrokes and storing them in a human-readable file as well. See, that makes less sense. Why do you... Why? What? I'm just flabbergasted. It's understandable how it would be missed... What I, what seems ununderstandable to me is why it necessarily gets in there. So I'd like to I'd like to actually just punt that to the audience. It, can you explain to me why you would need this as part of your development process? Why would you need something like this? Like in a network sense, I understand why I would want the ability to mirror a network port. That makes sense to me. Right. So I'm trying to make an analogy there. Like in what sense am I debugging a software, spe- specifically a piece of hardware, where I need to keep a copy of everything that's typed into the keyboard? I'm just I'm just curious what people would what would what would, what would you submit for that? Let us know. Yeah, do you, it. TechSnap.Systems, and we have a contact page over at TechSnap.Systems. You can just go to slash contact if you want. There's a form there. It works pretty good, and it goes right into our inboxes, and uh, we'll try to answer those questions. Because feedback, we're going to keep. It's one of the things we heard when we were making the transition on the show is you guys love feedback. So we're going to keep that around. Let Heck us know. Huh? What, would, what would the functional... Best case scenario reason for this be techsnap.systems slash contact. 
Well, in the Department of Vendors rushing out patches to fix vulnerabilities, Apple's had a bad couple of weeks. And one sort of slipped under the radar that I wanted to sort of warn the TechSnap audience about in case they use any HomeKit devices. iOS 11.2 introduced a vulnerability that allowed attackers to remotely access your HomeKit hardware, including door locks, in certain scenarios. Wow. Bad one. This is like full-fledged, worst-case scenario. You had to be running iOS 11.2. You had to be using a certain kind of sharing functionality. And is this on the, like, the home, whatever is being your home kit device in your house? That's that's what has to be running? No, it was on the on the phone. Oh, okay, on the phone. I would assume, I would assume you probably need to keep the I, I, Apple TV. Yeah, so what Wes is uh, alluding to is in the home kit world, you can have an Apple TV or an iPad act as a central hub that allows this remote access to take place in the first place. And uh, a a researcher discovered this, and Apple took immediate action. But the first action they took, because they weren't ready to write a patch, they just turned off remote HomeKit sharing. Just Just, turned it right off. Just broke it. So everybody's remote HomeKit setup for sharing just totally stopped working. So say uh, you were here in the studio, and we had HomeKit here in the studio, and I had shared my HomeKit setup with you so you could control lights and, and the studio when I'm not here you would have lost access to all. Or even like, you know, what if I needed to let myself in? And that's how I mm-hmm. did it. Yeah. yeah, which is something maybe one day would happen, although I don't know if you'd be using HomeKit. But um, the vulnerability, which we got little details initially, allowed total unauthorized control of HomeKit-connected accessories, including everything you could put on it. And the most serious ramification of the vulnerability prior to the fixed was the unauthorized remote control of August smart locks or garage door openers, for which that was actually demonstrated to the press before a fix was even out. And there's been a lot of these selling this year for Apple. A lot of these devices are selling the August locks and the ring doorbells. Oh, yeah. And Apple first broke HomeKit sharing, and then they later released iOS 11.2.1, which fixed the vulnerability. And according to Apple's release notes, the update also re-enabled remote access for shared users of the Home app, uh, which is good, I suppose. (laughs) The HomeKit bug, though, is it was fast action on Apple's part. Yes. They they really did break. They shut down that functionality immediately, and then they released something that essentially said we basically have to make a fix server side too. So that's why we have to. Turn Interesting. It off. So it wasn't just just the new iOS version, but also yeah, hmm. yeah. And a couple of press outlets like Nine to Five Mac got more information, but opted not to share it because they felt like oh, this is really bad, and so they got some demos and stuff, but then sat on some of the details. You know, I think a lot in, in, in past episodes of this show and in other, you know, security shows, Apple gets a pretty good rating most of the time. Like, they obviously spend a lot of time in Touch ID, Face ID. We've talked some about those. The past couple of months, the past couple of releases, there have just been some some bad flaws. Yeah, and it makes the, you wonder. The root enablement bug in macOS, which happened recently, where if you are on the latest High Sierra and you hit enter twice on the root user, it actually ended up the logic code enable the root account to check for its password and would enable it with a blank password if you did through this certain incantation. Yeah, right. Wow. And that was that was one of many problems they've had recently. Yeah. And the thing that stuck, stuck out to me about this HomeKit vulnerability was for a period of time, people's homes were completely remotely exposed and they had no idea. You kind of assume it's a possibility at any given time, but you don't, you know, it's, it, there's a big difference between it's possible, but why would anybody want to attack me, right. to it's actually vulnerable at this very moment in a way where somebody could get access and unlock my doors. It's a, 
I don't know. Maybe it's time to it's time to think about connecting these things to the internet a little bit harder. I think. Yeah, I think you're right, and it's interesting to see that it happened on the Apple side too, because you know some of the selling mm-hmm. points to some people about HomeKit is that you don't necessarily have to have this whole automatically remote. Right, but once you step into the world of sharing it with other people outside your iCloud account and outside your LAN, you know you're gonna there's some server intermediary there that has to make that connection, that handoff happen. Right. And I think maybe part of what makes it more difficult is that it's not, you know, it's not an experienced admin who's, you know, acknowledging taking these risks and understanding the risks and benefits of it. It's presented in the Apple way of a very, you know, common consumer with all the bells and whistles that you assume makes it safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a checkbox here, a invite there, and you have no idea the links you're making on the back end or firewall changes even potentially with universal plug and play. Yeah, exactly. TechSnap.ting.com. TechSnap.ting.com will take $25 off a new phone or $25 in Ting credits. Now, why do you want Ting credits? Well, it's pay for what you use wireless. It's just a fair price, no matter how much you talk or how much text you send or data. Wes and I were talking earlier today when he first moved into his place. He had to go like two weeks without internet. It was terrible. (laughs) So that might have been a period of time where you had a little more data, right? That I did. It does average itself out, though, which is really nice. After a few months, it sort of averages itself out, and you're paying way less. In fact, the average Ting bill per line is 23 bucks a month. It's $6 for the line, and then just your usage on top of that. And I didn't have to worry that I was going to like break some contract or have crazy overages. There's just simple rates. I could calculate how much I expected to use. Straightforward. It's how mobile would be done today if the whole industry had to be Yeah. Done. And they're backed by Two Cows, which is a great company. Just start by going to techsnap.ting.com. Take a look at their dashboard and customer service that will blow you away. techsnap.ting.com. Thank you very much to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And thanks to everybody for visiting techsnap.ting.com. After a few years of basically working seven days a week, the Jupiter Broadcasting Studio has accumulated a bit of technical debt here and there. And we've been kind of going through and cleaning it up, trying to address it. But there's one that we've been putting off because it's just worked. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, is always the saying. And this thing is essentially not broke, but... The reality is we have a very old free NAS Mini. When iX first started selling the product, I bought one, and it's even running, or it was running, a beta version of free NAS. And we just went to the races and never really went back and addressed it. It's been in production all these years. Yeah. And really, it's, it's one of those things that once it's in production, you have a hard time stopping everything and taking this thing offline and interrupting everybody's workflow and upgrading Right, it's pretty essential to the day-to-day operations of Oh yeah. We can't put shows out, we can't do no. anything. No, it's so it's kind of a key thing and, and the other issue is that it's growing so rapidly that uh we're having a hard time backing it up because you can't really back it up online because we need the connection for other things and it would just dominate our connection constantly. And I haven't gotten Dan almost convinced me, but I haven't yet gotten like a tape system, which is kind of where I'm actually going with this. Oh yeah. But I haven't gotten there yet. If I could find a good deal on eBay, I might get a tape system for it though. But I haven't I haven't yet. And so it's in production. We're using it seven days a week and I don't have the best backup. It's in a raid, but I don't have a I don't have I'm working on that. So it's time for some tender loving care. We decided we needed to get this thing upgraded because the next step we have to do is address our storage, get our pool back in the right shape and get backups working. This is this is we're going through the dependency tree to get this thing to a state where it needs to be a reliable piece of enterprise equipment again and digging it out of its hole. 
And step one is getting it off of a beta release of FreeNAS. So that way we could get it on a supported version of FreeNAS that was getting maintenance, that had full features, and then we use that to readdress the storage. But in the meantime, we got to get there. And we thought, well, how would the audience do it? Would they make a leap? Would they try to upgrade in between? Would, what would you do? And so what we thought is, let's go out there. We'll, we'll, we'll go out in the Jupiter Broadcasting Data Center, a.k.a. our garage, and we'll just record the whole process and share with you how it went so you can learn from our mistakes or potentially our victory. So we've been looking at this. We have two options. We can either go straight to FreeNAS 11 or we can go to 9.3 and then try to go from 9.3 to 11. What version are we on now? 9.1. Okay. Beta. Right. And so we thought the, the audience would be most likely to do the graphical update options. So we're going to try that. So we've downloaded the 9.3 image. I'll go over and log in and give it a go. Oh, yep. You ready? Nothing will shovel break. That'll be fine. Yeah, that's the <clears> other <throat> thing here, right? This is a... I mean, it's not like we... We're not going to break it, but it's not a test system. So yeah. we would prefer to have the FreeNAS working at the yeah. end of the day. I mean, it's so out of date because it was one of the very first FreeNAS minis, and it was a beta build, and we just never... It just, Turns out you're running a podcast network. It just went, not, in, it went to work, and yeah. we never we never. Uh, it's a testament it. to the reliability. Yeah, but it's now, as we get to the point where we want to do a bunch of storage changes, we got to get this thing updated. So Now, we might want to do the save config option right. also. Yes. I did recommend that. Yeah, we will. Yeah. So you can click here, it'll download your configuration, which oh, is good. Perfect. And uh, so that's step one. And then step two is you have to choose your upgrade image, which is different than their regular ISO image if you're in the 9 series and you're upgrading. Right. So that's something to keep They've got mind. like an XZ-packed tar that you can just yeah. do. It doesn't have all the ISO stuff. Yeah, exactly. Okay. We've got it selected. And hit upload. A whopping 364 megs okay. of FreeNAS goodness. So I guess this is there's no step after this. You just hit apply update. All right, let's hit it. It's uploading the firmware. It's going pretty fast. Okay, hey. 30%, 60%, 80-90, it's uploaded. I think it's probably doing the checksum now. And extracting the firmware. The FreeNAS mini is in this we're in the we're in the uh, garage of the studio and it's out here. So we're sitting next to we can start to hear it start thinking here in a second. Oh, this is it, extracting firmware. I do feel like the 9.1 to 9.3, that's not a significant jump. I feel like if we can get into 9.3 pretty safely, we don't lose our configs, it should be a pretty straightforward process. So we're like a standard place. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people probably upgraded from 9.3 to 11. Yeah. And then then it's storage time. Then we're redoing the entire storage setup, adding a whole bunch more storage. Excellent. Yeah. I think it needs it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're at... I shouldn't even say it, but we're at 94% capacity Ooh. right now, which is, we got to no change it. No file system loves that. No, we got to get that down to like 80% max, uh, which is, that's a future goal, but that's why we need more storage. All right, well, the firmware updates, I'll get our etcher backup, just in case this image-based upgrade, they call it the graphical upgrade, doesn't work. We have a backup plan, which is to go to straight to FreeNAS 11 via the ISO image and just plug we're in a USB port. And, try it. Yeah. Although, if we have to plug in a USB board, we're also going to have to get a monitor and a keyboard. <laughs> oh, system is rebooting. Oh, oh, here we go, Wes. Okay, fingers here. crossed. Oh, boy. Now you just wait. When you're doing these things remotely, you just wait for the system to come back up online. And you're, like, you're always tempted to like bring up a terminal window and start a ping. You know, just run a ping. Yeah, right? absolutely. <laughs> Why not? Should I? Okay, yeah, I sure. will. Because <laughs> you just want to know, right? Who can resist? I can. Okay. Start pinging 0.4. All right. Chrome is complaining that our page has crashed. But that's, uh, you can wait, Chrome. 
We're getting destination host unreachable. Okay. It's going to be doing the actual OS upgrade now. Let's what? hope at some point it comes back up. This is what I feel like the. This is what it's like to communicate with the Mars rover. Yeah, right. You're you know, like, send a transmission. Uh, you're doing uh, an OS upgrade. Fire yeah, even though it's in our own building, it's still. It's like it's. It might as well be all the way across the world in some remote data center. The second right you don't have a monitoring mm-hmm. keyboard right there, mm-hmm. but even sometimes when you do. Now I'm really questioning if this is going to work. At this particular moment, I'm really questioning this. That's a part of the process. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's like it's like uh, 40 degrees, maybe 38 degrees out here, too. So <laughs> it's like every moment counts. And we could move that VGA cable. Check the back of that thing. Does it have VGA or DVI? You might be able to grab that and just plug it into the Freenas. We could get a little console. Give it a good push. Oh, there we go. Oh. We got screen. We got screen. What do we see? There we go. It's rebooting right now. So we, we plugged in the monitor just to see it reboot. <laughs> Intel inside. Yeah. This is good, though. We're going to be able to watch the whole boot up process. Huh, Grub. Stuff. They're That's using... Funny. Look at that good new software. Yeah. Okay, boot normal. Boot up. That sounds normal. All right, we're seeing the typical uh, FreeBSD boot up. In fact, we just saw ZFS support initialize. Trying to mount ZFS pool. Blind database schema changes. That sounds like an upgrade task. That does. It does feel better to be able to see it on the console. Yeah, right. The system's alive. You're not just yeah, wondering. You're doing something. Yeah. We probably would have canceled this by now, just <laughs> hard-powered it off, losing everything. <laughs> I don't know about that, but tempted, oh, maybe. Database okay. upgrade complete. Rebooting. Boy, it's really nice if you're doing this upgrade. It's really nice to have a physical console. Yes. Because none of this information gets relayed, of course, to the web interface, because the web interface isn't up at this point. Boy, I guess you could even run FreeNAS on your KVM if you pass through the disks. Through yeah. the hypervisor, yeah, and then you could have a nice console that way too. Well, I think we, I think we have audience members that do just that. Okay, this might be our last reboot, and then we're on nine three. Okay, the ZFS pool just came up. I think System D might really speed this boot up. <laughs> trolling. No reply yet on the ping. Ooh, boom. Okay, link is up, and we should be seeing it's doing DH. Okay, now it's doing DH discover. Should see something. It should back. get its 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 assigned static address from the. And we got oh. we've got reply on the network oh. right there. Our ping is getting okay. I bet you the web interface will be up soon. Yeah. Whoop. Okay, so we're getting the ping back in our terminal. It has generated its keys, and it looks like it's at the console with this regular prompt. So let's try bringing it up in the web browser. Only one way to tell now. Hey, Boom, right okay. there. Let's hope the password is the same. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yep, and we are in. I think. It doesn't seem to be rendering correctly. I'm gonna go ahead and hit refresh. Uh oh. Doesn't look quite right. Maybe hit expand. Oh. I'll also turn off my ad blocker. There, there we, go. we go. Turn off. Turn off uBlock Origin. Interesting. Well, I'm glad that's all it was. Yeah. Right. So it looks like uBlock Origin doesn't work so well with FreeNAS 9.3, at least on Chrome on this box. So yeah, now we are on FreeNAS 9.3 stable. Excellent. And, uh, looks like... Now, the beard mentioned something about changing trains. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wanted to... It looks like our, looks like our config preserved, so that's yeah. good. Looks like we still have the same file shares. Yep, there's Ooh, our main beautiful. mirrors. Hmm. Now, I noticed... Oh, yeah. yeah, there we go. So now there's this new update tab. We can check for updates. This must be uh, the tracks he was talking about. So here's FreeNAS 11 stable, which we could switch to. Are you yeah. sure you want to change trains? Okay. Let's, let's do it. All right. So then we just do that, and then we say check now for updates. Does that look like? Yeah, yeah. that's oh, taking yeah. us to 11. 
So this might work. This could be a pretty... All right, it's so going to let us do it. This will be two GUI upgrades in a row, and from a beta install from when the FreeNAS Mini was an original product. I imagine we're going to get a whole new look at UI once, uh, once this comes back. So our download is completed, and it's installing the base OS right now. One of five core packages. That actually went pretty quick. I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah, I think definitely. that downloaded faster than the 9.3. I think it did. If this works, if we can go from a 9.1 beta, it wasn't even a stable release, that was legitimately neglected. Because we're podcasters, we weren't doing system administration stuff. It hasn't been until recently that this has become a priority again for me. And uh, now it's like, okay, there's a lot of technical debt. we got to go and clean up. And that's why we got to readdress the storage, too. And if this can go from a neglected 9.1 beta install to 9.3 and then to 11 without blowing up, which we're not there yet, but if it does, that's almost my definition of a bulletproof product. That is that is rock solid. And it's not like we did a ton of pre-planning. You thought about it, but like yeah. we kind of just walked up and we're like, we're no. going to do it. And this could have been a disaster, too. It really could have. I was actually expecting this to be a... It may still. We don't know. It may actually right. blow Let's up. Let's hold out it. some hope here. Yeah. Well, 70%. 70%. There are these times in this process where you really don't know, is this a 20-minute process yeah. and or an hour process? There's nothing on the console at this stage. No. Not until all the... It doesn't even tell us that we're up No. Like, there's zero indication. I could be over there trying to do other maintenance. <laughs> oh, 90%. Okay. Okay. All right. Four out of five. All right. Installing free NAS package tools. Just a couple of comparison notes. This process is much different than it was going to 9.3. We didn't have to go out and manually get the uh, checksum. No. And probably half the time we spent was just getting the right package to upgrade. Right, and we to. didn't have to. We didn't have to manually locate the uh, upgrade file. Right. It downloaded it for us. So they've they've made this with even this is 9.3. They made this easier. So I can only imagine when we get to. 11. I hope it's going to be even better. Right. I think we're getting close here. I imagine it's about to reboot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we keep looking at the console. Okay, we're going down for a reboot. I'm going to bring back open the terminal and start my ping back up again. Good idea. We're still getting replies as of right now. Is it shutting down? Yeah. Slowly. Alright, did we just drop off the network? Yep. Yep. Rebooted? Yep, we're off the network. Okay, here we go. Destination almost unreachable, and this is where we wait and see. So it looks like there were several new Grub entries, like an upgrade environment that it's booting into. So it, the upgrade scripts must modify Grub and change the default entry to this upgrade environment that it's downloaded. You know, it's been ages since I've actually watched this process. You can kind of see it the, the way it's architected, the way they've isolated out the OS and the configs and the data. Yeah, it's really nicely done. I've used FreeNAS. I've used shares certainly provided by it, but I've never administered one. So this is all kind oh, of really? new for me. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, We've always I've had a free NAS in one form or another for years, but it's then but neg, then I just neglected it. So it's yeah, it's sort of like a re return to home for me. We can both learn. User local Espin migrate ninety three. I'm sure that's nine point three. Right. But uh, right. Look at that. I'm kind of at this moment. I'm kind of glad we went nine three first instead of trying to go right from nine one to yeah. eleven. Mounting local file systems. ZFS volume import. Here we go. Activating the interface. We've seen how this plays out. Yep. Our DHCP server gives its its assigned. It's always great when DHCP just works. Right? Yeah. I actually do like statically assigning IPs to my servers via DHCP because when I'm remote, I can re-IP stuff. 
Yes, and yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. Okay, it's loading the different plugins, like the management plugins right now, and they're all loading successfully. It's up. The web interface just reloaded uh, automatically. Nice. Okay. We'll try the same login. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Sweet deal. Yep. Free NAS 11.0. Very Looks good. good. Very good. Now, and look, there's our file shares right there. It's right there. That worked. That was actually pretty flawless. We have one critical error, and that's just that our, our volume is full. Uh, oh, look at this, too. New feature flags are available for volume Buttermere. Refer to the upgrading ZFS pool section, which we grabbed. Yes. So, so we, they do mention this, and yeah. that is so that if they have upgraded it, it makes rollback impossible. Ah, so okay. well, now that we know that it's worked, maybe yeah. they're tested on some other systems, yeah. then we can upgrade the pool. Look at the new VM section. There's oh. going to be some stuff to play around with. Now it's time for the storage upgrade, which we'll do in the future, too. We had to get this up to a modern, supportable version of FreeNAS, and I think that's, that's step one. That's that's mission successful though. We should probably test the share from a oh, yeah. third party system. We got to test like all the other servers, make sure the VMs can connect and all yeah. that stuff. But it's looking really good so far. The NFS is up. We had an NFS error earlier, but that looks like that's up and running. Uh, so I like all of it. I'm happy. I'm very happy. And that uh, we'll just double check everything, and I think we're going to call it a success. Well, all our tests went pretty well. We're back in production, no problems, especially for not really preparing, kind of just diving right into the problem, getting stuff done. I'd say it was a pretty big success. Yeah, we've been running off it for over a week without any problems. So now the next stage is the storage. But kind of funny, as we're recording this yesterday... IX Systems announced FreeNAS 11.1, <laughs> so we're now behind we're again. Now we're behind. <laughs> it looks like a pretty nice release. So 11.1 has what they call new cloud integration, but probably people are going to care more about the OpenZFS performance improvements, like the ability to prioritize resilvering operations, early Docker support, and the way they're doing Docker is via Rancher OS in a VM. Interesting. I don't really know a lot about Rancher OS. I know you looked it up a little bit. Did you find anything interesting, anything like yeah, noteworthy about it? It's somewhat similar to CoreOS, but um, you know, focused on running containers. In particular, they containerize all the system services as well. So also somewhat similar to Cubes, you know, where you have various VMs. Rancher OS, you have various containers, each doing different parts of the system huh. services, and then you run applications and containers as well. That's something to look at. That's a fascinating idea. And so that would make sense that they would be using that inside a VM. They've added support for AMD Ryzen processors as well. And uh, the the cloud integration I was talking about. Cloud what, sync. Yeah. 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 A- Amazon S3 sync, uh, Backblaze, B2, which is great, Google Cloud, and Azure all supported in there. That's been pretty handy. We're, look at all the benefits we're getting. Yeah, that's really that's really great. One other thing about the performance improvements for OpenZFS, they say handling multiple snapshots of large files is way faster, too. Awesome. Nice on a FreeNAS rig. Yeah. They're also introducing a new iteration to the Angular-based administration GUI, which is in testing, so you have to like click on a beta link to get it, which we didn't bother with our 11.0 setup. Right. But it's not quite there yet, it sounds like. No, it sounds like they, they are expecting it to reach feature parity with the 11.2 release. So that's something to stay tuned for. Yeah, and looking at the screenshots, I'm going to give it a go for a bit. This uh, Backblaze integration and the S3 integration, it's really what it is. It's integration for simple storage services. So it probably would work with DigitalOcean oh, Space as well. I bet it well. would. There could be some options here for certain types of backup, depending on certain data sets that maybe I could sync off. I'm pretty impressed with how smooth that upgrade process went. We did. We weren't sure. Uh, we didn't tell IX before we did it because no, no, we, did we weren't sure how it was going to go, and we didn't know if it was going to blow up on our face. Because especially it, on that weird beta release, yeah. If it did, uh, we would have told you. We would have just reported it as it went, and it probably would have been our fault. But we would have reported it, 
Instead, it went better than I expected. And it really, to me, defines that's a rock-solid piece of equipment. Yes. Something I really trust in, in that I can, I can misuse that thing for like a couple of years and then come back to it just out of nowhere with very little planning and be right up to date and everything's looking great. And it makes me feel really confident that when we go right back out to the garage and get 11.1 on there, that it's going to go just the same way. Yeah, I think so too. And this now, this part right here we say is sponsored by IX Systems, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. They're the folks that create FreeNAS. They will make a system custom built to your business needs. Or you can go grab a FreeNAS Mini right now that's ready to go. That's what I've got. I've got a slightly older one, but it's still just a champ. And I'm, we're, we're going we're gonna to keep using it for a long time. As long as that thing runs, we're going to use it. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go there to support the show and grab their guide to buying a new server for open source. It's not really for our audience generally, but it's generally for the people that our audience has to interface with. Right. So that's a very useful tool. And dig around the IX Systems site and see all the things they have to offer, all the different configurations, the cloud rack that they have, which is Ooh. the tree rack. It's so cool. So go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. I'm confident when I say from a software standpoint and from a hardware standpoint, they will build a system for you that is better than you might even think possible. I've always been impressed when I've interacted with them on a sales standpoint. And now, years later, as a customer, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And they're not, some, they're not some crazy big conglomerate. You know that if you need them, you can just give them a call, talk to real, friendly, interested humans, yeah. and get some help. Go check out the blog. they got a TrueNAS 2017 year in review post up right now, as well as posts from some recent conferences that they attended. I love it. they got a great blog. They're a great company. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Future thank you to everybody that goes to techsnap.systems slash contact to send in some feedback to this show. Most of the feedback for the last week you could summarize as, what's going on? What's happening to the show? Where's TechSnap? So instead of answering that, because hopefully you kind of have an idea of where we're going now, I wanted to answer another question that I hope will be helpful to the audience. Because I have been in this position before and I know where they are going wrong before I even get to it. You know what I mean? Like, you get a sense. Yep. You just have that feeling. And I feel like we can impart some wisdom here. Uh, This is someone seeking input. I won't say who. Someone seeking input on giving a security presentation to their HR company. Now, there's a twist. They're only about a month into being at this company, too. So that's like a little... makes it a little more awkward. Yeah. Uh, So this this individual has been tasked to present a security-centric presentation to HR to help show them the best practices and guidelines in handling confidential data as it applies to network files. This was at the request of HR just to sort of help improve their data security practices and be more responsible. So they're engaged to a degree. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that's a great place to start. Yeah. It's wonderful that you don't have to start saying security is important. They already, they're already on board. So here's his plan. And this is where I think he's going to go a little off the rails. My current plan is to do a very high-level overview of best practices. Okay, I like that. Then show them how permissions are distributed to their team members. There are five people. Then propose that we can do even more granular file-level permissions if they so choose. I'd also like to hit on employee terminations and the importance of company data staying within the office. Think email account deletion, account outlook cache deletion. But I feel like there's a lot more I could add to this list. So if we have any, please pass it along. And we could also collect some from the audience. But general advice on the plan of attack there. I'll say what jumps out at me, Wes. I'm thinking when he goes off and starts talking about file permissions and how they could even get more granular with file permissions, he's going to lose all five of them. 
they're all going to check out. When IT people start talking about file permissions, they they just couldn't care less. So you, if you can, you can talk about basic concepts, about keeping HR data secure from other areas in the company, about where they have to go to do that, and they'll, fo- they'll, they'll follow. But when you start getting about who's going to have access to what and if they're going to have read or write access, in my experience, they gloss over. What do you think? Is it a conversation that has to be had anyways? I don't know about I don't know about has to be had and it depends on the structure of the company how you know how many liaisons there are between his department between IT and and HR in particular and the, the you know the the relative level of technical sophistication that Definitely. the people he's working with have um, but I do think you're right it can be very easy to get too far into the weeds I think as technical people we often have a desire to try to explain something in a way where it's like here's everything i'm going to try to give you the fundamentals that you can you know you will understand everything and then you can make reasonable yeah. here's deductions. the thought model to use right and for some people that that works but i would say especially in business it's not usually the norm and instead focus on like easy takeaways and behaviors that they can do tons of acls no one needs to know about that maybe one person maybe you have that conversation with the manager of the department to yeah. work out what those roles are but after that they just get slotted into their roles the other thing, too, is keep in mind when you're going in, you might want to do a survey, an audit of types, if you will. Look out for like rogue installations of Skype and Dropbox that maybe they're using to share files. See if maybe they have a lot of sent items in their sent box that maybe are protected and or not prop or not properly protected. So keep an eye out for that kind of stuff as well, because you might discover that they've just implemented some workflow that you don't even know about that fundamentally violates data security. Right. That's a good point, too. I think it's a good time to just have a general overview of IT security practices, make sure they're not running any strange unauthorized applications that could be leaking customer information, anything like that. We thought we'd try something new and end the show on one story that we just wanted to talk about because, well, it tickled us this week, and it's really the name. It's process doppelganging. And how could we not talk about this? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the attack was demonstrated during Black Hat Europe 2017. Uh, doppelganging, a fileless code injection technique. Whoa. Yeah, fileless. Works in such a manner that an attacker can manipulate the way Windows handles its file transaction process and pass malicious files even if the code is known to be malicious. So even if a, a virus scanner would normally see the file, flag it as malicious and you know quarantine it, they can they can circumvent that. According to the security duo, the goal of the technique is to allow a malware to run arbitrary code, including the code that is known to be malicious, in the context of a legitimate process on the target machine. In the context of a legitimate process, hence the doppelganging. In order to achieve this, they use NTFS transactions, which I note if you go check out Microsoft documentation on transactions, the first thing you see is... Microsoft strongly recommends developers utilize alternative means to achieve your application's needs and also notes that transactions may not be available in future versions of Windows. So that's that's our first hint here that there might be some trouble. Um, and transactions are similar to what you might be familiar with in the database context, right? So you start a transaction, you make changes, and then at the end you can commit the, the transaction or right. roll it back. And that plays a, a pretty big part here. Uh, so by leveraging NTFS transactions, they can overwrite a legitimate file in the context of a transaction. Then they create a section from the modified file, still in the transaction, and create a, and spawn a process from that. It okay. appears that scanning the file while it is in the transaction, it's not possible for the vendors to notify that to notice that it's actually malware. Uh, oh. And since they roll the transaction back after they've launched the process. There's no trace left behind. Ooh, yeah, so that affects all versions of Windows starting from Vista to Windows 10. 
but Windows 10 Redstone and Fall Creators Update are not affected. Maybe they disabled that function? It doesn't say in the article, but furthermore, researchers also conducted a series of tests against AVG, Antivirus, Avast, Bitdefender, Nod32, Panda, Semantic, Kaspersky. None of them detected the attack. The worst part about this whole attack is that it cannot be patched since it exploits fundamental features and the core design of the process loading mechanism in Windows. So they've used these oh. like kind of random features hidden away in different layers of Windows and are able to combine them where it's just... It's just inherently vulnerable. <laughs> That's not great news. No. I wonder if we'll see attacks develop around this. Of course, we'll let you know. Stay tuned. Yeah. The good news is that somehow the attack is arcane enough uh, that researchers are hoping it'll take a long time before something comes out in the wild. Yeah, it's definitely esoteric. All right, that's going to wrap us up this week. Go to techsnap.systems for all of the ways to get this show every single week. Also links to mine and Wes's social profiles and all of the past episodes as well over at techsnap.systems.com. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of the TechSnap program. We'll see you next week. Bye.